Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this week's show. As always, we'll start off with a weekly news and forecast, this week featuring Sarah and Sam as Rochelle is out. After that is a This Week in Drugs history. This week I'll be discussing the Harrison Act. And finally, our roundtable discussion featuring the National Advocates for Pregnant Women with Lynn Paltrow, the organization's executive director, and Dr. Sheila Vicaria, a professor at Long Island University. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast where we talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and some exciting things that are coming up soon. And this week, unfortunately, Rochelle is not able to make it. So as a substitute news reader and discusser, we have Sarah Merrigan. Hi, everybody. Excited, I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> you know, I spend awesome. so much time put going through the news stories that it's fun to actually get to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to start things off with the first story this week? Okay, so this Tuesday, um, in a budget speech by Australian Treasurer Scott Morrison, uh, they announced a new plan to drug test people who are receiving welfare. Um, And it's Mm. controversial, as it is pretty Mm. much everywhere else it's ever been announced. Um, (laughs) But this... This particular program um, would start off as a trial in three separate locations, um, including approximately 5,000 people. Um, And from the sounds of it, they're going to be looking at sewage water um, and testing the water for levels of drugs in the water to figure out where um, the best places are to sort of pilot this program. Um, And it's going to start in January of 2018. Um, And, you know, like I said, it's been controversial. So there's already been a lot of outspoken criticism. um, And the treasurer himself has said, if drug testing doesn't work, we'll stop it. And if it does work, it's helping people. We'll keep doing it. Hmm. Um, so I guess this is an interesting way of doing this because on the mm-hmm. one hand, I guess they might be trying to what reduce costs or something by trying to find the quote unquote problem areas first, um, in order to see where to test people. But on the other hand, I, I don't know if sewage water, um, like the drug content in it is necessarily directly correlated to the amount of drug abuse there. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. it could also just be the places where people are the worst at properly disposing of their drugs. Like if they have a unused prescription and flushing it down the toilet when you're supposed to turn it into the pharmacy or something so that they can incinerate it instead. Um, I, I wonder if this is actually even a good metric. 
Yeah, I don't know. I know um, the EMCDDA, the EU's drug sort of arm, um, they've done a lot mm. of work with it, but I have absolutely no idea as to like how effective it actually is. Um, but one thing I found really interesting, um, well, two, I guess there were two things I found really interesting. Um, the first of which is that the um, Malcolm Turnbull who is the prime minister um, for any of our non-Australian listeners <laughs> um, said that this policy is based on love um, but ironically the treasurer has also said the government would quote deny welfare for a disability caused solely by a person's own substance abuse um, hmm. and so that's a little bit difficult for me to reconcile. <laughs> Not sure how, mm -hmm. how that's a policy based on love. Um, but there's also a lot of, you know, there's a lot of opposition for it, but there's also a decent amount of support. And there was um, Senator Lambie. Um, she is, you know, she's supportive of the program to test people who receive welfare and it um she's a senator from tasmania um but she also has suggested that politicians she's only okay with this program if politicians are also going uh. through it um, <laughs> well, that's kind of refreshing it's I interesting mean, i think yeah i feel like usually we see people be like well only if politicians do it too coming from people who are like opposed to the the program right not people yeah, who yeah like trying to sink it on purpose yeah and mm -hmm. whereas her argument um was basically just that like politicians are paid by the taxpayer just like people like exactly the same as welfare and i think we should be if we're supposed to be the ones showing leadership then this is what we should be doing mm -hmm. so interesting yeah well. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how this develops and we will certainly continue to cover it Absolutely. And so for the next story this week, unfortunately, um, both of my stories are about the Trump administration. And in general, I try to avoid talking too much about Trump just because <laughs> that's what he wants. <laughs> and I prefer to kind of ignore a lot of the fluff and stuff that's going on. But I do think it's important to talk about the, the small amount of substantive changes uh, that actually are happening and how his administration is impacting people. Um, and so the first one here um, is about one of his cabinet members um, who hasn't gotten as much attention as some of Trump's other appointments. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price. Uh, so while he was on a listening tour about the opiate overdose epidemic at a stop in Charleston, West Virginia, he reportedly touted faith-based recovery programs while deriding medication-assisted programs, saying, and here's a quote, if we're just substituting one opioid for another, we're not moving the dial much, end quote. Uh, so this is a problem because it's in direct contradiction to what's basically the medical consensus on this issue and even his agency's own guidelines. <laughs> uh, this is something that the federal government's actually been supporting for a long time and really isn't that controversial among the medical community because uh, it's been shown that medication-assisted programs so we're talking about, you know, things like methadone or suboxone, that those can actually help wean people off of other drugs and can be really helpful during their recovery. So I don't know, this is about as silly as talking, uh, like saying that we shouldn't be using nicotine patches because it's substituting <laughs> one drug for another. Um, but no one says that. But just because opiates are involved, 
now it's this controversial thing somehow. Oh, that's, it's really frustrating. And it's interesting, you know, he, there was another NPR article. Um, I think they did an interview with him and the headline is community's key to fighting opioid crisis. Um, HHS mm-hmm. secretary says, and so it's, you know, he's talking about the importance of community support and it talks about how he's on this tour. Um, like I think he was in West Virginia when he made these comments, but it's just, it's, it's frustrating, you know, the community support is absolutely important, but but it's it's only one tool in the toolbox, right? We need mm-hmm. more than more than just that. And I also thought yeah. it, uh, it, and when he's talking about community support too, I mean, he probably means something very specific, which mm-hmm. is basically trying to fund these church-based programs um, and things like 12-step recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous that are very uh, religion heavy. And I mean, that totally works for some people. Um, if you are religious and if that kind of program is the right fit for you, it should totally be an option, but it's not a one size fits all and they've really tried to make it one. And so I feel like that is ends up being really harmful to people you know, who aren't religious or who have not had success with those programs and want to try something new. I mean, uh, many episodes ago in our first season, actually, uh, we had Randy Henkin on and he was talking about how smart recovery um, is a good alternative for a lot of people. And this administration just isn't really supporting that kind of thing. And this is one of the many, many, many places where (laughs) there's actually, you know, a really substantive difference between what would be happening right now on this listening tour um, if we had, you know, President Clinton rather than President Trump. Yeah, I think one other thing that was really interesting, um, Dr. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General who was Mm. forced out, um, I'm actually just going to read a direct quote um, that he confirmed in a statement to the news um, organization STAT, um, said, quote, if recent comments from the administration indicate a shift away from an evidence-based public health approach to the opioid crisis, I am concerned the negative impact on the health of Americans will be considerable. It is important that people know the truth about what science says about opioid addiction treatment. Medication-assisted treatment works. It is also important that we not further stigmatize medication-assisted treatment by incorrectly implying that it is not effective. That will only make it harder for people to seek out the care they need, end quote. Um, And so he is... You know, I like many other former um, people who have worked in the administration, Mm -hmm. very, very outspoken and making sure that we're paying attention to the science and the evidence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So our next story is a little bit of an interesting one um, coming from the state of Washington. Um, If you're a regular listener, you know, we've talked about... um, the push for supervised injection facilities in Seattle, um, specifically in King County. And this week there was actually, um, I guess I read the article this week. I am not 100% sure when the campaign was launched, Um, but there was an initiative announced to ban safe injection sites in the county. Mm. And it requires about 47,000 votes to qualify for the November ballot, which is what they're aiming for. And basically, the chief sponsors are a city council member named Joshua Freed, um, and he has the support of a state senator, um, Mark Melosia. 
And this state senator seems like a really interesting guy, <laughs> to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one who went on when, Seattle, or when Washington was still sort of going through with their task force and trying to figure out the recommendations for King County. Um, he went on a tour and got to see um, Insight in Vancouver. Um, and so, you know, up close and personal, got a view of this, but is still very convinced that um, injection facilities are... Uh, he told the Seattle Times um, that he sees them as a step towards decriminalization and legalization of heroin. And obviously he mm. and I disagree on whether or not that's a good or bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also has directly said we, that we should, quote, stigmatize people who get hooked on drugs to get into treatment. Um, huh. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I guess that's one of the people who is backing this initiative. Um, and they're calling it... Um, Let's see, Safe King County. And so it's kind of <laughs> ironic that they're also using the, the term safe. Um, mm-hmm. But Sam, what do you think? What are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is really surprising because most of the time from people who are opponents, I feel like they just haven't actually been to one of these facilities and understand what they look like and how they operate. They imagine it's, you know, this kind of drug den where maybe people are supplying drugs to each other. Um, But in reality, they're healthcare facilities um, and they're run really responsibly. Insight has literally never had a fatal overdose in all of their years of operating. Um, And you really can't say that they're dangerous at all um, because of that. I mean, they're actually unequivocally been shown uh, to be reducing overdoses. And so yeah. I, I, like, I understand when people, you know, have some sort of moral opposition or if they don't understand it, but this guy went to it and saw it operating um, and is still opposed. So that's really surprising and disappointing to me. And especially just that these are people uh, trying to counteract um, some positive reforms that we're having because King County, um, I mean, it includes other parts of Washington, but it includes Seattle. Um, and that's where we've been having so much traction. Um, and it would really be too bad if they're able to gin up all of these fears um, and, and override what the elected officials are, are doing. And, you know, this is one of the very few times where elected officials are actually leading on an issue and not requiring a ballot initiative to get them to come around. So hopefully we can still, you know, fight back against this and and it won't pass. Yeah, I mean, they like I said, they need a little bit over 40, 47,000 signatures. But it is um, you mentioned the initiative process, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. This would be the first citizen initiative on the ballot since 2008. Um, and I also think just mm-hmm. really quickly, one last point that I wanted to make um, was that, you know, this comes this article in the Seattle Times was published the same day that there was an article. Um, there were many articles talking uh, about a new CDC report. Um, that said cases of hepatitis C have risen, rose nearly 300% between 2010 and 2015, largely because of a spike in heroin and other injection Mm -hmm. drugs. So this is, you know, the evidence is there that, and it's very clear that we need this. So Mm -hmm. fingers crossed it moves in the right direction. Yeah. 
And so our final story here, unfortunately, is another negative one of some uh, not just potential backsliding, but some definite ones. Um, And again, as I said about the Trump administration, uh, this time about the much more infamous Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, So this week he sent out a new memo that overrides a 2013 memo from the former AG Eric Holder under Obama. Holder, he had instructed federal prosecutors to avoid charging people for low-level drug offenses that would have triggered mandatory minimums. So basically, this was an effort to reduce mass incarceration by trying to not trigger those mandatory minimums. Uh, But now Sessions is doing the exact opposite. Um, So his new memo overrides that old one and says, quote, prosecutors should charge and pursue the most serious, readily provable offense, end quote. Uh, So basically saying, go for those mandatory minimums. We want to find serious stuff so that we can lock people up for much longer time uh, rather than trying to reduce the federal prison population. Um, So again, this is another serious impact of the Trump administration, what them being in power actually means. Um, There's a whole lot of fluff of anger about misspellings and stuff like that on Twitter and stupid comments. But this is stuff that's actually going to be impacting people's lives because they're going to be in prison for a lot longer for potentially, you know, nonviolent drug offenses. Yeah, and I think one thing that comes to mind for me um, is just how th- how this impacts the private prison industry. Um, you know, there's the impact on the individual, but there's also the impact on the corporate impact, right? And mm-hmm. there, we're already seeing, you know, their stocks are rising, and they're very clearly benefiting from this, um, and that's that's pretty terrifying. Um, mm-hmm. That to see that kind of again, it's like a complete reversal of we're moving in the right direction under the Obama administration, even if things weren't perfect. Um, and now we're, we're turning back around. Um, yeah. And it really is, I mean, too bad just because, I mean, people criticize Obama from the left and they're justified in doing so. He, um, you know, could have probably done a lot more on certain issues, but at the same time, he was the first president since Jimmy Carter, uh, to see a reduction in the federal prison population, uh, cause it had grown massively under Bush, uh, Clinton, uh, the other Bush under Reagan. Um, and so now it's probably, and, and it was only a, a very slight dip. He, he had finally stemmed the tide by the end of his term, and it was the first reduction uh, just for his last couple of years. Uh, but now it's probably just going to be going back up. So uh, when we could have hoped that that was the beginning of a new trend of the uh, federal prison population decreasing um, and us fighting against mass incarceration, now it looks like you know it's just back to the same old, and, and that's a, a result of this presidential election. I guess one question I have that, you know, I don't know if you'll be able to answer or if, dang it, Rochelle, we need our lawyer here. <laughs> um, but like what kind of, say there are people working, um, like there are AGs in other states who don't want to do this, who see that this is mm-hmm. not the best move. Like what happens that, I mean, are they all just fired? Like, Yeah, so that is the nice thing here is that while this is important and worth talking about, it's not... 
its impact can be mitigated by other players um, because so much of this does of criminal justice and enforcement actually happens at the state level. Um, So like state AGs still have a huge amount of control. Um, So, you know, here in Massachusetts, for example, I assume that all of our state police officers and and state officials are going to continue on the path of of not overly enforcing and seeking those (laughs) incredibly long sentences. Uh, But in states where they have been cracking down, this is a negative. Um, And this is guidance to federal prosecutors. Um, So it is all just within the federal side. And, you know, it is guidance. So um, some of them do still have some independence and could be more lenient if they choose, just like there were some that were incredibly harsh, even under Obama, because he couldn't actually tell them exactly what to do. But, you know, this administration has proven itself to be uh, a lot more willing to uh, eat their own uh, when they're not going along with what they want. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if they try to, you know, target lower level uh, judges or something. Okay, so it still allows for like a little bit of discretion. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I guess we'll see what ends up happening there and move on to our quick hit headlines. Um, So my first headline this week comes to us from Chile. Um, After legalizing medical marijuana in 2015, Chileans can begin buying uh, cannabis-based medicines in pharmacies this week, thanks to a partnership with the Canadian cannabis company Tilray. And to follow up on our story from last week, the Vermont House of Representatives voted 79 to 66 to legalize marijuana possession and limited home growing, making it the first state legislature in the in the whole country to pass legalization. Uh, So that's very exciting, but it does still require the governor's signature. And on Friday, Governor Scott said he's still not decided whether to sign the bill, but that it appeals to his, quote unquote, libertarian streak. Liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom committed to legalize and regulate cannabis in what was called, quote, one of the most radical drugs policy commitments ever made by a British political party. The party also committed to repealing the controversial Psychoactive Substances Act. On Monday, a Filipino senator and ally of President Rodrigo Duterte tried to explain away the wave of extrajudicial killings as fear-mongering from political opponents, saying there has not been an increase in killings and they've just changed their method of collecting data, which is very obviously untrue. <laughs> uh, he even just used the phrase alternative facts, uh, but actually in the opposite way, Kellyanne Conway used it, with him meaning that claims of human rights abuse were made up and those were the alternative facts rather than saying that alternative facts are a good thing. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So I guess we can move into our forecast now. Um, mine is pretty exciting. Um, and I wish that I were going. Um, we talked a little bit about club health on our roundtable last week with Dance Safe. It's a conference that's taking place May 24th through 26th in Dublin, Ireland this year. Um, And it's all, it's actually the 10th international conference on nightlife, substance use and related health issues. So if you're attending, um, please let us know how it is because we're all jealous of you. Um, Mm -hmm. And make sure to check out the presentations by Kristen Karras from Dance Safe, who was on our last episode and all the other fantastic people who will be there. Awesome. And for my forecast is that this week, the National Cannabis Industry Association, or NCIA, is hosting their annual lobby days in D.C. Uh, So on Tuesday and Wednesday, members of NCIA will be heading to Capitol Hill to meet with their representatives and ask for their support on federal reforms on marijuana. 
Some of their primary focuses are banking and tax reform for medical marijuana businesses, but I'm sure they'll also be talking about a wide range of issues and encouraging legislators to support broader reform. So even if you're not involved in the marijuana industry, or if you are and you're not involved in NCIA, uh, these could be a really good week just to call your legislators' offices to support reform so they end up hearing it you know, from multiple angles at the same time and having it even more on their mind this week. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. And I guess that's it for our news and headlines this week. Um, as always, there's, you know, we try and keep our eyes out for all the latest stories, but there's so much going on that it's really hard for us to keep track of everything. So if there's something going on in your neck of the woods, there's some story that catches your eye, um, please send them our way, or especially if there's an event that you're having, um, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to This Week in Drug History with me, your friendly podcast producer, Tyler Williams. Every other week, I'll be bringing you history of drugs, drug policy, and other topics of tangential interest. This week, because I mismanaged my time, the segment will be less rigorous and a bit more surface level. Still, we're answering a question submitted by a listener, Trevor Thornburg. Trevor asked us to cover the Harrison Act, but didn't give me a specific question about it. Normally, I'd come up with one of my own and do a real piece of history where I dig through primary and secondary sources to answer a specific question about an event or time period in history, but it's been a long week and I've decided to settle for a brief overview of this often forgotten piece of legislation, which was one of the first major federal drug regulations in the United States. So, The Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was a United States federal law that regulated and taxed the production, importation, and distribution of opiates and coca products. The act was proposed by Representative Francis Burton Harrison of New York and was approved on December 17, 1914. It consisted of three U.S. House bills that imposed restrictions on the availability and consumption of opium, and also passed conjointly with the House Bill H.R. 6282, or the Opium and Coca Leaves Trade Restrictions Act. Although technically illegal for purposes of distribution and use, the distribution, sale, and use of cocaine was still legal for registered companies and individuals. So as a bit of background, in the 1800s, opiates and cocaine were mostly unregulated drugs, and this is kind of a well-known piece of drug trivia, although by 1880, some states and localities had passed laws against smoking opium, at least in public. At the beginning of the 20th century, cocaine started to become linked to crime. In 1900, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an editorial that linked cocaine to crime committed by black people, feeding drug stereotypes. 
And of course, when it came to opiates, Chinese immigrants were blamed for importing the opium smoking habit to the U.S., and this fueled racism and uh, more xenophobia against Chinese immigrants specifically. Considering this racial history, uh, it is pretty clear that this act wasn't really to tax and regulate, as we might understand the, that phrase today. In fact, during the debate, Harrison stated that Quote, the purpose of this bill can hardly be said to raise revenue because it prohibits the importation of something upon which we have hitherto collected revenue. Later, he also stated, quote, we are not attempting to collect revenue, but regulate commerce. And of course, House Representative Thomas Sisson said, quote, the purpose of this bill, and we are all in sympathy with it, is to prevent the use of opium in the United States, destructive as it is to human happiness and human life. So there you have it. The Harrison Act was sold as sort of a bill to tax and regulate opium and, and coca products, but was really, and you know, quite honestly not hidden, uh, just an act to control the use and distribution of drugs fueled by racial discrimination and xenophobia in the U.S. Congress. A bit of interesting trivia about this, the use of the term narcotics in the title to describe not just opiates but cocaine, which is not a narcotic, initiated a precedent of frequent legislative and judicial misclassification of various substances as narcotics. Today, law enforcement agencies, popular media, even the UN and other nations, and even some medical practitioners apply the term very broadly and often pejoratively in reference to a wide range of illicit substances, regardless of the more precise definition existing in medical contexts. For this reason, however, narcotic has come to mean any illegally used drug, but it is useful as a shorthand for referring to a controlled drug in a context where its legal status is more important than its physiological effects. Again, sorry about the brief This Week in Drugs history. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with a more rigorously researched topic, uh, and I appreciate your patience. Let us know if you have any questions, comments, or concerns uh, by sending us feedback to thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And of course, you can message us on Facebook or Twitter. Just find us at This Week in Drugs. Time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the National Advocates for Pregnant Women with Lynn Paltrow, the organization's executive director, and Dr. Sheila Vicaria, professor of social work at Long Island University. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. All right. So some of our listeners might um, not be familiar with the National Advocates for Pregnant Women and might wonder what the heck it has to do with drugs and drug policy and everything that we talk about on this podcast. Um, so, Lynn, do you think you can explain a little bit about the organization um, and maybe a little bit of its mission and, and goals and how that intersects with drug policy? Absolutely. Uh, National Advocates for Pregnant Women um, works through legal advocacy, organizing, and public education to secure the civil and human rights uh, of all people, but focusing particularly on pregnant women 
and especially those who are most likely to be targeted for state control, surveillance, and punishment. And that includes low-income women, women of color, and drug-using women. Uh, what we know is that efforts to uh, regulate and control pregnant women, uh, pregnant drug-using women, create precedent uh, that not only uh, is dehumanizing and denying of rights to those women, but also sets precedent for all pregnant women. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so I, t I guess after hearing that, um, my assumption, uh, you know, and I have a little bit of background knowledge about the organization, but it sounds like a lot of the work that you guys do involves the legal system, whether it's and the criminal justice system, I guess, specifically. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think you're, what you're searching for is a little bit more fleshed out um, discussion. So I'm a lawyer and I started the organization and I started my career uh, defending the right to choose abortion at the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project. And after a number of years of working there, I started getting calls uh, about cases in which anti-abortion arguments were also being used to hurt, undermine, punish women who had no intention of ending their pregnancies. And those included women who became pregnant, used a, a drug, typically uh, a, a criminalized drug, gave birth to babies, most of the time healthy babies, who were then charged with such crimes as child abuse for having given birth to a healthy baby that had been exposed prenatally to one or another drug. Um, they were charged with crimes such as a delivery of drugs to a minor, with the claim being that the delivery occurred through the umbilical cord. And if a woman was unfortunate enough to give birth to a baby who did not survive, and the baby or she happened to test for one of the criminalized substances, she might be charged with murder or homicide by child abuse. And what we came to recognize is that these were cases absolutely at the intersection of the war on abortion and the war on drugs. We know as a matter of science that none of the criminalized drugs are good at causing pregnancy losses. In fact, they just don't. That none of the alarm that gets created and recreated, whether it's the crack baby myth or now the, the uh, alarm about newborns exposed prenatally specifically to opiate drugs, um, that none of the risks of harm are greater than the risks of prenatal exposure to cigarettes, cotinine, and less than exposure to large amounts of alcohol. And I always say this, my mother smoked through her entire pregnancy, and maybe if she hadn't smoked, I'd be a for-profit lawyer. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Thank you. No, I really, um, I really appreciate that context and that that background. Um, and it's definitely, you know, something we're still, like you mentioned, with the the opioids and sort of the. Um, the new the crisis and there are always all the articles you know I, I put together um I think some of our listeners know this but I put together our news stories um for our team to choose from each week and to discuss and just the the number of women being charged with um just these ridiculous all the things you named off Lynn um it's 
it's scary. Um, but I know on sort of a more positive note, uh, your organization recently just had a really big win in Wisconsin. Did, um, did you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. Um, we just had a victory in a federal court. Uh, in 1997, uh, the Wisconsin legislature passed a law uh, known then as the Cocaine Mom Law, but the Unborn Child Protection Act. And it's fascinating on many levels what that law was about. Um, there's a terrific article I think in Mother Jones about how it's called like how the pro-life movement used the crack baby crisis to pass uh, pro-life laws or so-called pro-life laws. Uh, what had happened in the 1990s, uh, prosecutors in Wisconsin, as in many states, decided that they would make themselves look like they were doing something about effective in the war on drugs by prosecuting women who gave birth, uh, having been pregnant and used a drug. Uh, in one case, a woman, uh, it happened to be a white woman, which was pretty unusual at the time that a white woman was targeted at all, uh, went for care to a private physician. She was pregnant. Uh, he realized that she was using cocaine and told her to stop. And like many people who use drugs, she did not stop. And maybe she was not able to stop at that point in her life. If she had done what he had asked and gotten into the program he wanted her to go to, she would have lost her job. And because she wasn't compliant, he thought he would be very clever and report her to the child welfare authorities as if the uh, fetus inside of her was already born. And in fact, the Child Welfare Department uh, agreed and gave an order uh, that required the fetus to be in drug treatment, thereby taking custody of her, was the Angela M.W. case. And to make that long story shorter, um, the case went up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and, in, and then um, uh, with the Chief Judge Shirley Abraham's Abrahamson, they decided that this that the child welfare law was never intended to be used as a mechanism for taking custody of pregnant women in the juvenile court system for any reason. And the response was not to increase access to drug treatment in Wisconsin, to do more outreach, to do more research on how, you know, how what the real problems might or might not be regarding pregnant women and cocaine use. Instead, they passed the Unborn Child Protection Act over the objections of uh, the entire medical community in the state, because it's well known that if you threaten women with uh, some kind of punishment, arrest, loss of child, their children, they're less likely to come in for care during pregnancy, which can help them whether or not they overcome, uh, uh, whether they stop using drugs or overcome a dependency problem. Uh, they did it over the conclusion by several agencies that the law was likely unconstitutional. Uh, the law went into effect, and because the law, what the law did was basically create a special mechanism by which uh, any state authority could take any pregnant woman from the moment she became pregnant into custody and order her to do what they wanted her to do um, if she, according to statute, uh, uh, was an expectant mother. Uh, with habitual lack of self-control in the use of alcohol, beverages, controlled substances, or controlled substance analogs exhibited to a severe degree, posing a substantial risk of harm to the unborn child. Uh, this law was passed over the objection of the medical community uh, in spite of the, the reality that it was unconstitutional. 
But all of the proceedings take place under extreme confidentiality and secrecy in the juvenile court system. So despite efforts to keep the law from passing, that failed. Once it was in effect, there was there, it was very difficult to find a way to challenge the law because you needed to find a woman who'd been charged under the law, who, uh, who was able to find somebody who cared and then challenge it. And even her ability to make public what was happening would violate secrecy rules of juvenile courts. Uh, in, uh, in the last few years, there were two women, Alicia Beltran, uh, and then to, uh, Tammy Lacher, who were taken into custody under this law, who found their way to National Advocates for Pregnant Women, and with the help of the NYU Reproductive Justice Clinic and uh, then the Perkins Coie Law Firm, we have were able to finally bring challenges to that law. And just recently, the federal court uh, ruled saying that this law uh, although they were, it didn't address a lot of the constitutional issues, it said at a minimum this law must be enjoined because it is unconstitutionally vague. Who, nobody knows what habitual lack of self-control and the use of uh, controlled substances exhibited to a severe degree means. The court called it a festival of circularity. Um, and, and the case itself demonstrated what's so horribly wrong with the law. Uh, in Tammy Lacher's case, um, she had was unemployed, had a uh, had a problem with her thyroid, wasn't able to afford the thyroid medication. She'd been using a little bit of methamphetamine, a little bit of marijuana to uh, cope with the the loss of energy uh, and depression around having the thyroid untreated thyroid problem. When she realized she might be pregnant, which she thought she wasn't ever able, going to be able to become pregnant, she went for help. Uh, and as a result of seeking help and sharing honestly her experience, uh, her, her past use of a small amount of drugs, uh, somebody in the hospital, and particularly the social workers, decided that she uh, should be reported to child welfare authorities uh, as an unborn child abusers. And the next thing she knows, there's an emergency hearing going on in a courtroom where the fetus has been appointed a lawyer, uh, but she has not received advance notice of the hearing, has no right to a lawyer at that hearing, and where they decide that she has to be put into a residential treatment program for a drug problem that's not been diagnosed that she does not have. Uh, in order to be to to be placed coercively, forcefully into that program, though, she must first have a tuberculosis test because they don't want to let anybody into the community without making sure they have TB, at which point she says, you're not taking any more blood or anything else from me. Uh, this is my, not literally what she said, but uh, she agreed to a scratch test. They refused. The hospital felt that she was in good shape and let her go home. Uh, and the next thing she knows that the lawyer for the fetus, and this is really quite a mystery to me, brings contempt proceedings against her because she didn't go to the uh, forced inappropriate treatment and, and has her locked up in a county jail uh, for not going to the treatment. And why any, even if one could possibly imagine that we should live in a country where uh, embryos and fetuses have a right to counsel, how their lawyer could possibly think that putting a pregnant woman in a county jail would be beneficial or protective of that fetus is absolutely beyond me. She goes there, she asks for prenatal care, and their response is, 
we can't, uh, we can't, we have no prenatal care in the, in the jail. Um, we can't take you there until you have a pregnancy test to prove that you're, that you're pregnant. And she says, I'm being locked up. Again, this is my um, version of it. I am incarcerated because I'm pregnant. And when she refuses to take the pregnancy test, they put her in solitary con confinement. Uh, and during this period, she's uh, for several days is deprived of her thyroid medication, which she needed. Uh, she doesn't have access to prenatal care. She's in a hideous uh, solitary cell uh, without, without, with the enormous stress uh, imposed upon her and with all the effects that stress can have on individuals and, preg and pregnancy. So that was just one case. And in other cases as well, women who admitted to past drug use, even before they were pregnant, uh, would be taken into custody and told they had to comply with forced medical treatment or go to jail. Wow. Um, well, thank you for explaining all of that. I, um, that is a, a lot to process. And I, I guess I'm wondering, Sheila, as you know, you're with your social work background, um, what are your kind of initial thoughts? I think that the idea of a pregnant woman um, using substances poses you know, this ethical quandary for a lot of practitioners. And I see that a lot of social workers struggle being in that ethical gray area as they so perceive it in terms of, you know, who are my obligations to? Who am I trying to protect from harm? What do I think is the most ethical thing to do? And then also just, uh, you know, potentially being influenced by their own personal moral backgrounds and upbringings as well. And so you do hear about these stories in which uh, social workers try to justify the choices and the decisions that they make um, with the idea that they are trying to prevent further harm, that they are trying to advocate for the best um, services or outcomes as possible. And so it is, it's really challenging. You know, I think this is an area in which my profession really hasn't done a lot of, I'd say, good, solid work. You know, um, a lot of social workers still speak about um, their difficulty in dealing with uh, reproductive rights and understanding what Roe v. Wade actually entails and seeing that their role as a social worker in upholding, um, you know, laws and rights that people are entitled to versus their own personal faith or personal feelings about things. I think this is another example of that gray area. Thank you. Um, one other question I have um, for Lynn. Um, so is Wisconsin the only state with this type of punitive law, um, or is this something that's common um, all across the country? Uh, that's a great question. And just before I get to it, I, I, I just want to sort of talk a little bit about this notion of ethical quandary. I, I think that on the one hand, that many social workers feel that their social ethic, social work ethics uh, are challenged. They're not sure what to do based on the, the ethic guidelines they have versus what they, what they think their state law requires. And sometimes 
uh, hospitals where they may be working have policies that actually are not consistent with state policy and what do they do? But I don't, I think if we, I think it's a mistake to, uh, I don't want people to be confused. Pregnancy itself shouldn't be thought of as an ethical quandary that we've too often look at the outcome of pregnancy and think it's, it's only about the woman and her responsibility, what she did or didn't do. And we're understanding more and more and more that the outcome of any particular pregnancy really has much more to do with the entire life course of any particular woman, the community she grows up in, the history she's been, that we really should be looking at a societal womb. And a way to think about that is you could you could tell a pregnant woman, here's how to have a healthy pregnancy. Don't smoke. If you do, stop. Don't drink. If you do, stop. Uh, don't use illegal drugs. If you do, stop immediately. Eat well. Start prenatal care early. Don't miss any appointments. Manage your stress and do all of those things. And that's really sort of how most people, you know, understandably think about pregnancy. But think about it if we actually look at people's lives and what's going on and think about it in terms of social determinants. And it, the advice you would give to any pregnant woman would be, don't be poor. If you can stop, stop. If you can't try not to be poor for too long, don't have poor parents, don't live in a poor neighborhood, practice not losing your job. Um, don't become unemployed, don't be illiterate, avoid social isolation, and most importantly, try not to be part of a racially or socially marginalized group. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, uh, I learned this from Abigail Ortiz, uh, uh, an MSW. Um, so given that we tend to focus blame and all responsibility on each individual woman who becomes pregnant or each person who becomes pregnant, um, it shouldn't be surprising that many states have laws or practices that result in women being subject to punishment, either through the criminal justice system, civil commitment proceedings, or uh, most commonly child welfare interventions, uh, often based on nothing more than evidence that they used one or another of the criminalized drugs while pregnant. Wisconsin's law is, but is unique. It is, there are several states that, almost every state says if somebody has certain kinds of mental health problems or their drug use is completely out of control, you can have them civilly committed. And they're very, there's a lot of protection around those proceedings. Uh, typically have a lawyer at the first hearing before they can lock you up and it's only for 72 hours and very carefully controlled limits on government uh, locking people up. The criminal justice system has lots of protections in theory. <laughs> That's a different discussion about when, when and if they ever are um, actually available, those rights are available to you. What Wisconsin did was unique, which was amended civil child welfare law system, essentially to take away any of the due process protections one would have through either the civil commitment or the criminal justice system. So it absolutely just gave um, sometimes social workers and this system absolute power to ride roughshod over every pregnant woman and impose what they thought was best for them, including another case involving Rachel Lowe, where she goes to the hospital voluntarily to seek help for an opioid problem, where people at the hospital are working to get her into a methadone treatment program, which would be appropriate. Meanwhile, somebody else thinks pregnant woman, unborn child protection act, calls the sheriff, the woman is taken into custody by the sheriff and locked in a mental hospital uh, where she is put on various medications that are totally inappropriate. So 
uh, no, Wisconsin is not alone, but it was unique in its diabolical disregard for human rights, civil liberties, and health care. Thank you. Um, that reminds is kind of a perfect segue um, into the the next or another specific case I wanted to talk about um, involving Alexandra Laird from Alabama. Um, I think some of our listeners might be familiar, but she was a young woman um, and received a lot of a young woman who was pregnant. Um, I think has been pregnant twice um, and had two children um, and used heroin through both pregnancies. Um, And I know, um, so when we um, we put together our headlines for the podcast, um, there was an article and we can maybe link to it um, on our blog, but it was talking about how sort of the... She had been sentenced to jail for the remainder of her pregnancy, um, but she was in the hospital, and um, the I think the headline of the article is something literally like the ho- hospital and judge locked in standoff over pregnant heroin addict because the hospital recognized that treatment and things like that would be the the best option, um, and the judge and the more criminal side. Um, just wanted to wanted punishment um and so i guess um what was your organization's involvement um if any in alabama in that case um i think we may have provided i think we were contacted and as in many cases around the country we provide advice model briefs uh strategies alabama is really really uh, a mess uh and it, 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 while inappropriate responses to people who become pregnant and use drugs are everywhere, the two worst states are South Carolina and Alabama right now. And that's the result of not even legislative action, but rather co- judicial interference. Uh, so the background mm-hmm. is that Alabama, I think in 2006, passed a, a chemical endangerment of a child law. And clearly, the purpose, the absolute only purpose of that law was to create a penalty for adults who brought children to dangerous locations where criminalized drugs were being manufactured. Uh, There are problems with that that law uh, for a variety of reasons on its own. But it very quickly became a vehicle by which prosecutors were arresting women who gave birth to babies, uh, overwhelmingly healthy babies, who tested positive for any criminalized drug. And uh, we we help challenge that, as we do in many other places, and say this is not the purpose of that law. You can't use a law intended for one purpose and have the courts rewrite it so you can punish the people you don't like. Uh, And we win in most places, but in South Carolina first and then Alabama, the highest court, the Supreme Court of Alabama, ruled that in Alabama, the word child includes the unborn from the moment of fertilization, uh, that a dangerous environment includes a woman's womb, and that uh, allowing punishment of pregnant women for using any controlled substance, in fact, even ones prescribed to them by their physicians, was perfectly fine under this statute. And through excellent investigative reporting by Nina Martin and Amy Yurkachin, 
if I have that right. Um, uh, they exposed arrests of over 500 women. Uh, that, re new, that reporting led to some modification of the law, a task force being formed, and at least protecting women who are prescribed medications, con prescribed controlled substances, including methadone and suboxone, buprenorphine. Um, but the law remains in effect so that any woman who is pregnant and is discovered to use any of the criminalized drugs uh, is likely to have to be arrested if she lives in a certain county or in a certain hospital where they are um, more than complying with this outrageous interpretation of the law. Wow. Um, so I guess, you know, we're, we're coming up on time here. Um, and so I think maybe my last question for both of you, um, Lynn, sort of from a legal standpoint, and maybe Sheila from, you know, a social work standpoint, um, how do we change the situation? Like, how do we improve things? And what sort of recommendations um, would you have policy or otherwise? I think that one thing that we need to remember is that people use drugs for reasons. So I'm going to speak as a harm reductionist now just for a second in that we continue as a society to struggle with really, um, you know, this this moral criminal justice perspective about drug use and why people use drugs and who people who use drugs are. Um, i.e. criminals and bad people versus a society that's now trying to move towards um, a medicalization and a disease model perspective about people who are, who are addicted as being um, ill and in need of help. And I would offer that um, that what we see here and when we talk about women who use drugs during pregnancy um, is is that kind of we fall more into the criminal justice perspective or we fall more into that moral model when um, when when push comes to shove. So even efforts to destigmatize drug use by all these proponents who have the best of intentions to say that uh, drug users are ill or there's something wrong with them still falls short when um, people's emotions come into play and when we start to feel really pr protective and um, outraged by someone's use. And I, I'd say that a harm reduction perspective in, uh, you know, needs to be kind of introduced to this whole model, because I think regardless of seeing people as, uh, as criminals, but also not seeing people as ill, but seeing people as agents who are deliberately choosing to use substances because they're trying to meet some sort of need. Drug use does not happen in a bubble. People use drugs for reasons. And so if we can reframe this as trying to understand what are the contexts and situations which are, um, you know, are people self-medicating with substances? We know that women who use drugs are more likely um, to have experienced some sort of trauma or abuse um, in their lives previously. We know that pregnancy is a stressful time in someone's life. And so instead of um, punishing the behavior to try to understand what is it that we need to do as a society to better help these women to cope with the challenges of their lives, to address those unmet needs. You know, Lynn's example of the woman who occasionally used uh, methamphetamine and cannabis, but 
in regards to a, a thyroid problem that wasn't being treated, we know that um, that there are ways to wrap around and care for pregnant women to help meet their needs, to support them financially, to support them emotionally, to support them and into feeling safe and, uh, you know, and, and to have those other needs be met. I think that we are going down a slippery slope and with this current administration, this push towards a more punitive approach towards people to use, who use drugs doesn't really get at the fact that drug use is a symptom often of something else that we could be doing, you know, something else that's going on with this person that maybe we have an opportunity to address and to help with. Um, you know, pregnant women who have regular access to care by professionals who know that they're not being um, held to this standard of, of being police officers and doctors. We know that women who are able to have a stable source of, of income to have a, a roof over their heads are more likely to be able to feel healthier and safer and focus on the things that matter to them. So I, I'm really troubled by um, this legislation. I'm troubled by um, these moves forward in criminalizing women who are often actively sometimes using drugs to cope with other things that are going on in their lives. And we lose sight of that. I, I Thank you, Dr. Vicaria. That was, you know, really excellent. And I do know that I think when any of us sees a pregnant woman, we might feel a sense of optimism and hope, uh, and then also a sense of anger and frustration if they're doing something that we've been told is particularly harmful and dangerous. And so first, people need to sort of think, check, check their emotional responses. And we have learned painfully after this recent election that people don't always listen to facts, but the good news is that none of the criminalized drugs uh, actually cause the kind of harm that people fear. It's not a great thing to do, but it absolutely doesn't produce the kind of permanent unfixable damage that uh, many people claim or fear. And that the best way to help babies, even if people don't care at all about pregnant women, is to value the pregnant woman and to keep mothers and babies together. And quite literally, uh, for babies who are exposed prenatally just to one kind of drug, the opioids, who may have a withdrawal syndrome as a result, known as neonatal abstinence syndrome, uh, more and more research shows that the best thing you can do to prevent those symptoms, to have them disappear quickly, is not to take those babies away, not to put them in the most expensive place in the hospital, but to keep mothers and babies together, encourage skin, to skin contact, and breastfeeding. So if we're looking at checking our sort of first response, the second response ought to be respect and love and keeping families together, keeping mothers, babies, and families together. And for, for a more like short term, what can you do? Um, we are, this is, I think, May 11th, 2017, uh, and it is possible that Trump care will be enacted, and it will have a devastating effect, particularly uh, for adults on Medicaid, uh, and, uh, because, and Medicaid is the single largest source of insurance coverage for substance use disorders. So what Trump care is going to do, it's going to eliminate by 2020 uh, the Affordable Health Care Act requirement that requires covering mental health and addiction services. One of the downsides of 
passing laws focusing particularly on certain populations, such as pregnant women, uh, and, and imposing co the power of the state to coerce people into treatment, it creates the illusion that the treatment is available and they're just not taking advantage of it. When in fact, there's not a state in this country that has enough treatment, uh, even assuming that treatment knows what it's doing, for all the people who voluntarily want that treatment. So if you haven't picked up the phone, if you haven't written, if you haven't gone to a town hall to say, do not take our health care away, do not take away equity and coverage for addiction treatment, that's the thing, the one thing I hope you will do. And if I can offer something as well, um, Secretary Price just came out as saying that um, giving opioids to opioid-dependent users in the form of agonists such as methadone and buprenorphine is just substituting one drug for another. So in regards to that statement, I would urge people to also feel free to write and contact directly Secretary Price to dispel this myth that um, methadone and medication-assisted treatment is simply um, keeping people addicted and keeping people shackled. If anything, methadone we know with pregnant women and with other populations of opioid users can be incredibly stabilizing, can be incredibly health promoting, can help them to you know, free themselves up to take care of their other essential needs. We know that methadone works and it saves lives. And so I would urge people to respond directly to Secretary Price. Methadone saves lives. Methadone helps pregnant women and babies. Um, and it works. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since we feel that educating people is pretty useless if they're not also using that knowledge to improve their communities and make positive change. And you two beat me to the punch and knocked the ball right out of the park. So thank you. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to both of you today. And um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Week in Drugs. If you like what we do, please make sure to subscribe, rate and comment so that other people can find the show as well. If you want to help us cover our costs, you can go to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the Become a Patreon sponsor link. It'll take you to our Patreon page where you can donate monthly to help pay for our web hosting and other fees that we incur for our equipment. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for the show, please email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on social media at thisweekindrugs. We appreciate you being here, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song today is Goodbye by Deep Dish. Beach right there, we could toss a line.
still along good bye 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 now if it's the weather that's the problem or there's venom in the ocean i'll write my name on your arm but if the island's too big and we can't find a pen have to stay the night It won't matter if we get any sleep It all I see a coconut tree. 